Our scripture reading for this morning is Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1 through 6. If you would stand in reverence to the reading of God's word, please. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But... As it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Father, for your, for your people, thank you for your spirit that brings new life. Father, as we study your word this morning, Father, may may it make profound changes in our life for your glory and for our good. Ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So we're going to continue our walk through Hebrews chapter 8. I'm actually only going to uh, preach verses 1 through 5. 6 will be next week and included in the next portion. But here's how we're going to tackle the passage today. So I just want to give you kind of the flyover here, and then we're going to get right into point number one very quickly. Here's how we're going to tackle. A, if you don't have your Bible out or a Bible app, please have that out as you should each week. Look at the passage. If you see verse one, looking at verse one, it says, now the point in what we are saying is this. And then in verse three, Come the reasoning for every high priest is appointed, and so on. So here's our steps for this morning. Here's how I'm going to go at this passage. I'm going to tell you the point, that's verses 1 through 2, and I'm going to do that rather briefly and quickly. Then we're going to work through the reasoning, which is verses 3, 4, and 5. Then I'm going to come back to verses 1 and 2 and expand and apply those points. So I'm going to give you the, the points. Then we're going to go through three through five, the reasoning, and then we're going to land on the points and the application of those points. So here's the point. He begins in verse one. Here's the point. I'm going to summarize one and two for you. Our high priest took a seat, and two, our high priest is king. Those are going to be the two final points that we land on. And that's the point of what he is saying here. Our high priest took his seat, and our high priest is king. We'll come back to those two points in the second half of the sermon today. For now, let's work through the reasoning, which is verses 3, 4, and 5. The first point is this. The old covenant was a pattern for the new. The old covenant was a pattern for the new, or the new covenant. 
See, the old covenant was a pattern awaiting fulfillment. It was awaiting the, the reality that it was pointing toward. The old covenant was a picture of what was to come. So when the new comes, this, this is important. When the new comes, the old is not trashed, but is seen in a clearer light. That's what it means for it to be fulfilled. The old covenant is not done away with. We don't, un, we don't ignore it. We don't need, as Andy Stanley says, to unhinge ourselves from it, as foolish as that is. The old is not trashed, but we see it in a clearer light because it was pointing to something new. And here we have the new, but it was a pattern. Now, we've got to understand the context here as we, as we come into Hebrews chapter 8. Understand the context. It was written, most people believe, prior to A.D. 70, before the temple was destroyed. That's crucial. Here's why that's important. That means that as he's writing these words and as these readers are hearing these words and reading these words, multiple years after Christ's death, the Jews still have a physical high priest. The Jews still have physical priests walking into a physical temple with physical sacrifices. So those who are religiously closest to their faith have physical priests, physical temple, physical sacrifices. And many of these Christians, particularly in the Hebrews who are reading this, would have been previous Jews themselves. And here's what's happening that we can gather from the context here. The Jews are saying, Christian, Christians, where's your priests? We don't see him offering sacrifices. Our priest is. Our priest is offering sacrifices. Ours is better than yours. Ours is better than yours. The world is telling our children the same thing. We don't see Christianity helping you be who you want to be. Come worship our pagan gods. You can be your most true self. You can be the best version of yourself, I heard someone say recently. Our priest is better. The world says the same thing to the church. Now, as humans, imagine being in this context. I mean, our context is, is not altogether different, but, but imagine being in their context. You see all of your friends, maybe even family members, taking their physical lambs to a physical priest who walks into a physical temple uh, in an attempt to make them right with God. And you don't have anything in your hands. You don't have a physical priest walking into a physical temple. You don't have any of that. I bet you it's going to be hard to persevere in that moment, isn't it? It's going to be hard not to, you know, maybe just this time we'll just go grab that lamb and maybe he can just go. And we'll, just, we'll just check both of our boxes. We'll just make sure we're doubly good. I mean, the, the point is, uh, of writing Hebrews is so that the people would have an immovable faith, that, that they would not 
waver or that they would persevere. And here's this moment where their hands are empty and everyone else has something good. It would be hard to persevere standing there with nothing in your hand. So understand the context. Next, every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, we're told in this passage. So not only do they have physical priests offering physical sacrifices, but every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Look at verse 3. For every priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Have you heard that phrase, they had one job? Have you heard that phrase? Think about that in sports often, you know, when the kicker misses the field goal, the winning field goal, and it goes wide left, and you're like, man, he had one job. He made millions of dollars. One job. It's necessary for the priest to have something to offer. It's required that he find a sacrifice, that he give it as an offering. You've got one job. Because God's people had broken their part of the covenant, atonement, that was the, created the need for the sacrifice, atonement had to be made. That's the one job. So a priest, here's, here's where this is the point. The, so a priest without a sacrifice is no priest at all. By nature of the point of the office. They're to appease the God for the failures of the people. They're to appease the God. They're to offer up a sacrifice to gain the favor of the God. In this case, in the Old Testament, they're, they're doing this as sacrificial atonement towards the one, and true, one true and living God. But this is true of every priest. Without a sacrifice, he's no priest at all. That's how cultural gods work too. You can be who you want to be. You might just have to give away your children so you can chase that career. A priest is no priest at all without a sacrifice. A priest must offer a sacrifice. Which brings us to Christ. In this context, Jesus had nothing to offer. Jesus had nothing to offer. Look at verse 4. Now if he, the the pronoun there is, is Jesus, If he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. So according to the law, the old covenant here, particularly the sacrificial system is what we're talking about here, the priest had to secure a physical sacrifice to bring to the physical temple. And Jesus had absolutely no intentions whatsoever of grabbing a physical sacrifice to bring to a physical temple. He wasn't going to do it. It was never part of his plan. Matter of fact, Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And we know he's not talking about the physical temple. So he had no intentions of stepping foot in that to offer a sacrifice. So do you see where this might be challenging. If Jesus' priestly work was to, was to be performed on earth in the physical temple, he would be no priest at all because he's not going to carry in a lamb. His hands were empty in that sense. So do you see where this might be challenging? You look around 
Look around ourselves and the world today. We're children of the devil around us. Have lots of sacrifices in their hands. Lots of sacrifices. They're sacrificing their families to chase after A or B. Aborting children. Those sacrifices in their hands. Sacrificing their children's heritage or their children's private parts. I mean, look at how much of our children's future was sacrificed for the sniffles in 2020. But then you don't have to look around just at those who who don't follow God, but look around at the self-righteous Christians around you, maybe even in this room, with lots of sacrifices in their hands that they feel really good about, a perfectly kept schedule, not a curse word on their tongue, lots of Bible verses posted everywhere from Hobby Lobby, or being nice. And the temptation is to look at your hands empty and to say, oh shoot, let me go find something to sacrifice. Let me go find something. Jesus had nothing of this sort to offer. If he were just of this earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are are priests who offer gifts according to the law. But what we see with these gifts is that all signs pointed forward. All of these physical signs, these phys- particularly in this situation, physical priests, physical sacrifice, physical temple, pointing forward, a pattern, a type. Hebrews 5, 8, chapter, 5, uh, chapter 8, verse 5. He says, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. You know, one of the things, I think, in modern Christianity that is a, is a hindrance to us is kind of a, an overreaction or, a, or a, a too hard of a turn towards spiritual and tangible things, intangible things, to the neglect of physical things. We're kind of like functional Gnostics. But in this case, where I think that's particularly detrimental to us is that these Jews here can see a physical temple and appreciate the physical temple and physical sacrifices and a physical priest. And so when they think, when they hear these words, Those things that you see with your eyes, that you've probably even touched, that you've interacted with, that you could go down the road and see, those things are a shadow of not just a future thing, but of a heavenly thing, of something even greater. Not that this was bad, but something even more, a fulfillment of it. This is just a pattern. It's just a copy. It's just a shadow Moses is instructed to build a tent. This would have been the the tabernacle. Now, it's key to understand that the tent, again, that Moses built, it's a physical tent. And as a physical tent, it created, it did three things, at least. It created a place for God's presence to dwell with his people. 
a place for God's presence to do, a represented God's presence among his people. Two, it maintained a place where atonement was made for his people because they're in relationship with this God and they have failed in this covenant. This is a place where they offer sacrifices. And three, it served as a shadow of the heavenly reality to come. So when Moses was erecting the pattern, I love how the Lord says, see that you make everything according to the pattern. Why? Because that physical reality was pointing to a spiritual reality. That physical mattered. The details mattered. Because it was pointing to something where the details matter. Moses was representing something far beyond himself. And the temple or the tent represented something far beyond itself. These signs were pointing forward to the real tent. The real tent, he, he tells us in the second part of verse 2. He says, the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So he's drawing this huge distinction that this tent is a place that's constructed not by any man, but by the Lord himself. It's not the tent that Moses put up. It's not the tent or the temple that was built or the one that they see in front of them. And it's not that those things didn't matter. And it's not that that tent didn't, wasn't real. It was valuable. It had a place. But its place in serving its day also served as a pattern for the future. It served a purpose. And what we know from Hebrews is that that purpose was done. The purpose that it served in its day is done. The fact that it's a pattern is now done. Think about it this way. Think about the conclusion of the need for the pattern. Think about it this way. If a king is coming to visit you and your family, and ahead of him he sends a representative, someone to speak on behalf of the king, and you and the representative are, are, are having a great conversation, right? You're talking about fun things like politics and, and diplomacy and economics and, and the intents of the king and but then the king arrives. Who are you going to talk to now? I mean, I hope you're smart and you go talk to the king. I mean, you don't need to ignore the representative. It's still a person. It's, it's, it still had a place. He, had, he served a purpose. But, but now you got the king. Right? And the king's here. Are you going to talk to the representative and say, hey, representative, can you tell the king, you know, like, we want to talk about this, and the king just sits there. No, the, the, the real thing is there. The real thing is present. The real thing is before your eyes. I just want to note something I, I think is interesting here. The author of Hebrews literally just told all the Jews that their physical sacrifices to the physical high priest taken into the physical temple is not the true tent. I mean, he just cast a lot of shade on all of their most heartily felt religious commitments. The author just said, listen, there's no point in that anymore. Matter of fact, to partake in it is to deny Jesus. 
I mean, that's not very nice or agreeable. But he says it because it's true, and it's what they needed to hear. And at this point, particularly for the Hebrews, so they would not turn back to that. Because to turn back to that would be to deny what we're about to think about and what we've learned about Christ. But Jesus doesn't walk this true tent, this real tent. Jesus doesn't walk into a tent made by human hands, but into the actual true tent in which God himself has always resided and built with his own hands. That's where Jesus went with his sacrifice. So let me ask you this question before we move on to the two points of this passage. What sacrifice is in your hands? And what temple are you trying to walk into with it? So Jesus went to the true tent, offered not a lamb, but himself as sacrifice for our sins. And then we learn his point. Our high priest made a home right up there in the throne room. Our high priest took his seat. Our high priest went into the true tent and took a seat. Look at verse 1. Now the point and what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated. One who is seated seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, and so on. We'll get to that other parts later, but one who is seated. Now, what you need to see as we think about this seated, the true tent equals this holy of holies places, place, if you will, rather, which is the throne room of God, his dwelling place, no evil, nothing like that can even survive And Jesus walks in and has a seat. Now, in the shadowy tent, the the not true tent, the one that was the pattern, the one that all these peoples could watch their friends walk down to the high priest and watch that high priest walk into that tent, okay, that temple, the one made with human hands, there was no seat in that temple. There was no seat in that holy place. There was no place to sit down. In that place, although God could be temporarily appeased, the priest had to hurry up, get in, and get out while the getting was good. Why? Not because God wasn't full of mercy, but because it was likely, it was likely at any moment, a new sin might arise in the priest's heart. And if he was in God's presence... He would be no more. There was, it was not his home. It couldn't be his home. He didn't have a new heart. He couldn't make his home there. He couldn't just stay for a little while. But in the real tent, not just the place that was the pattern, but the actual place and throne room of God. Jesus walks in, and he doesn't just stay for a little while. He takes a seat and stays forever. 
you know, in, in, in my house, in my household, the head of the table is reserved for none other than dad. When dad is missing, mom is very much my representative and represents well. The boys like to sit in my seat when I'm not there. I've noticed this. Sometimes I think simply because my seat is a little more comfy to their scrawny butt cheeks than the normal bench that they sit on. But sometimes it's because they know the honor that the seat holds. They, they know the honor that, that that position holds in our family. And they, they see that seat holds power. It holds authority. It holds respect, dominion, vision, direction, stability. That seat holds sturdiness for our family. And they like enjoying those things as they should. And one day, that seat will be theirs in another household when Sarah and I shoot them like an arrow into some dirt across town where they will establish their own seat. Well, across town, I don't know who's laughing. What are we laughing at? Why is there... I'm shooting them across town where they stake into the ground somewhere. That's the point. I speak words. They're important. All of them. Sometimes I miss words. <laughs> One of these days, I'm glad my family was laughing. That's great. We will shoot them like an arrow. Where they will start their own household. Where they will establish their own seat. Where they will reign as king of their own homes. Listen, Jesus walked into that precious room. The place where we're told in the immediate context where God's majesty has always and forever dwelt. In that place. In that place, as Jesus walks in, I can hear the Father say, Hey, Jesus, have a seat. Hey, Jesus, my son, have a seat. This is your seat right next to the throne. He sat down. Why? For two reasons, in part, because he was done. He sat down. The work was done. Not, not his reigning and ruling and building work, but he was done with laying down the cornerstone. He was done with putting that in its proper place, the cornerstone with redemption written on it, the cornerstone with atonement written on it, and he placed it, and he was done. It was finished. You see, the priest could never sit down in the old temple because his work was never done. Why? Because even as he walked in, there were new sins being committed. Because tomorrow... That, that, that blood couldn't cover the sins of tomorrow. But Jesus could offer up his blood and then it'd all be paid for, all of it done in that moment so that when he walked into the throne room, he could say, it's done. He could sit down because his work was finished. The priest of the old covenant was never done. 
It was only a shadow of the doneness of the work of Christ. He sat down because it was done. Next, he sat down because this was his home. He sat down because this was his home. In my house, I'm the only one qualified to sit as the head of the household. I'm the husband, I'm the father, it's my seat. It's totally my seat. Jesus was the only one qualified to take the seat next to the throne. The only one. He was righteous and holy. He was worthy of such exaltation. He walked in, made his sacrifice, and then he took a seat. He sat down. This was his home. Hebrews is saying to us, hey, Christians, as you see all those children of Satan walking into their temples, having their priests offer their ridiculous sacrifices, he's saying to us, I know your hands are empty, but your empty hands are superior to everything those pagans have in their hands because Jesus walked into a tent not made by human hands. I know He's saying to us, church, I know you feel foolish in this world with empty hands. But listen, don't feel foolish. Be grateful. Be thankful. Because it's only your empty hands that are fitting to grab a hold of Jesus' fittingness. And here's the hope that you and I have for tomorrow should our hands stay empty. Where he is, there we shall be also. Where he is, we shall be also. If our greatest need is to draw near to God, to be brought near to him, then Jesus has surely done it. There could be no closer place than the right hand of the Father in the throne room of the majesty of God. He didn't just bring us nearby. John 14, 3 says this, Jesus, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. We don't want Jesus to have a lamb in his hands and walk into a physical temple. We don't, surely don't want to have anything in our hands and walk into a physical temple. What we want and what we need is a Christ who walked into the very true temple, the throne room of God, and sat down next to the Father, that where he is there we may be also. That he will go. He has prepared that place. That's what he's referring to here in 14.3. Listen, he, he, he's not talking about like, well, he's going to go and he's going to make us streets of gold and, and give us these big mansions and, and whatever. You know, maybe the case, maybe that'll happen. Maybe you're going to live in a shack. But that shack in the throne room of God is where you want to be. And that's where he's prepared for us. Matthew Henry explains, this authority he exercises for the glory of his Father 
for his own honor and for the happiness of all who belong to him. And he will be his almighty power, bringing every one of them in their own order to the right hand of God in heaven as members of his mystical body, that where he is, they may be also. Listen, listen to me, Christian. Don't, don't feel foolish and certainly don't be tempted. There's no need to walk into the temple of the self-righteous. There's no need to pick up the sacrifice that the pagan priests are walking around with. And as you watch the world tear itself apart, there's no need for you to join in. Don't pick up those sacrifices. It's a good thing that your hands are empty. Your hands might be empty, but at least your empty hands have a seat at the king's table. If he goes and prepares a place, there we shall go too. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Like, do you believe it? So not only has our high priest made a home right up there in the throne room, but our high priest is king. Our high priest is king. Back to verses 1 and He says, now the point, and what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated, now at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. I mean, what an incredible picture. Now, why all this talk about kings in the book of Hebrews? I thought Hebrews was all about priestliness. Certainly, there's lots of talk about priestliness, and, but there's lots of talk about kingliness as well. Now, why a, why a king? In part because what's coming next in Hebrews 8, namely a shift in emphasis. This is kind of a hinge point. Now we're going to start talking a lot about covenant. We talk about, a lot about the priestliness of Christ, but now we're going to start talking a lot about covenant. See, a covenant is an agreement between two parties with stipulations and consequences. With stipulations, things that have to be met, and then the consequences, which are good things or bad things, depending on whether or not you keep the covenant. It's typically, though, in this context, made between two parties not of equal authority. You guys maybe have heard of the term, the suzerain and the vassal. This is the king and the underling, essentially. The greater power and the weaker power. The king and the subjects that he takes care of via the covenant he makes with them. So king is important in the context of covenant. In chapter 8 and beyond, we're going to be talking about these, the covenant and the covenant stipulations. And in that context, we're going to see that even though we have failed our part in keeping the covenant, God has made provision for us. That's what we're going to see particularly here immediately in chapter 8. Even though we failed, he's made provision for us. So the kingliness is important because it's the king or the suzerain that sets the stipulations. It's important to note that if, if it's a covenant and we know that we can't keep the covenant, then our only hope is in the king over the covenant. Do you follow me? Our only hope is in the king over the covenant, the one 
with the power and the authority. And so if that's the case, the character of the king matters. The character of the king matters. We have such a high priest that he is worthy to sit on this throne. That's that's the language here. Right hand of the throne of what? The majesty of heaven. There's no greater place to sit. There's, There's nothing that would require as much perfect character as this seat. So character matters. Take our president, for example. If you want to understand why character matters, now that I got everyone's attention. He's a liar, a thief, a murderer, a child hater, a child mutilator, a woman hater, a God hater, a sexual deviant encourager, an image of God destroyer, thoroughly an instrument of Satan, he and all his deviant cronies. In response to the Nashville shooting, out of the White House comes, it is shameful, it's disturbing, and our hearts go out to the trans community as they're under attack right now. Or in response to Roe v. Wade, when it was overturned, let me be very clear and unambiguous. The only way we can secure a woman's right to choose and the balance that existed is for Congress to restore the protection of Roe v. Wade as federal law. To put it in modern vernacular, when he walked into his office, he told Obama, here, hold my Bud Light while I slam the gas pedal towards Sodom. Character matters. The covenant that our president has made with us is to, under God, do what's best for the people. And it's been broken and broken and broken. The character of the king matters. Next step. Imagine the anxiety of God's people every time there was a regime change. Imagine every time there was a change in the king and his authority. From David to Solomon to Rehoboam and so on. In this context, they have a Roman Caesar. When one king would die and and was replaced by another. I understand for them, a regime change was much more clearly life or death. I mean, I think we're starting to see the the impacts, uh, the the implications of a a godless king in our day. Because we're starting to see more death. For them, it was much more clear. The king could manage some sort of foolish debacle that might lead them into exile. That God would punish them, lead them into exile. You see, the people knew, they understood that they were not keeping their end of the covenant, and they understood the king's role in that. They were reminded of this every single time they had to offer a sacrifice. Every time they went to the the temple, they were reminded of their inability to keep the covenant. That's part of why we do the Lord's Supper every week, is to remind us of our inability to keep the covenant. 
and to remind us of Christ's utter ability to keep the covenant as he did. You see, the king's role in helping the people keep the covenant was a big deal. He could lead the entire nation into sin and away from keeping the covenant, or he could lead the entire nation into righteousness, keeping the covenant, and enjoying God's subsequent blessing. And here's one of the great truths for us. And here's part of what he's saying to those who are reading his letter. We don't have to fear a heavenly throne room regime change. We don't have to, there's not going to be no, there's not going to be a change. There's not going to be a new one come around. We don't have to vote again in four years. There's no one else to go into the temple. We don't have to fear the, the, who's going to lead us towards faithfulness in the covenant. Who's going to keep us in the covenant. Who's going to do what we could not accomplish ourselves. We don't have to fear that. It means today when you wake up and as you walk today and tomorrow, you don't have to think who's leading me in this covenant with my God. It's Jesus. And the next day you don't have to worry about the changing. He doesn't change. His character is perfect. And he will never cease being that king. He took a seat that shall never be vacated again. Let me ask you a practical question. If, if this is the case, if Jesus is the king and the king over the covenant and we are his subjects, how often do you dismiss the declarations of the throne room of God? How often? When, when Christ makes an edict, when he declares something, which is here, right? The Bible. We don't get to, when, when we argue with that or when we dismiss it, we're dismissing the authority of the throne room of God. When we argue with it, we're arguing with the throne room of God. We're offering with the king of our covenant. The one who has graciously died for those very dismissive or negligent walks and interactions with the throne room of God. I would ask you this question in that moment when you do that and when I do that is who do you think you are and who do I think I am? We don't have to fear a heavenly throne room regime change. Next and last, Christ reigns with power. If he's the king, then Christ reigns with power. Listen, Jesus is no gelding. Jesus reigns with absolute dominion and control and sovereignty. Without exception, he is the king of kings. There's a church in Cincinnati called Christ the King, and we jokingly told them we were going to name, when we changed our name to Christ the Lord, that we were going to change it to Christ the King of Kings. <laughs> Jesus is the King of Kings with utter authority and rulership. Nothing outside his purview, nothing outside his jurisdiction, nothing outside his ability. He sits next to the 
the ma- in the throne room of the majesty of God. And our assurance is grounded there. As Jeff talked about, we have an anchor that goes up into that room of which we are tied to. Jesus is seated in heaven for us. He guarantees our place and where he is, he will take us to. That he, and he is working with this power powerfully over all Sending the necessary power for our faithful walking, for our making our calling and election sure as we persevere. He knows what we need and he has the power to send us whatever it is. One commentator said this, what a blessing it is then to find that the one who ascends to the throne over us the one who comes to play such a pivotal role on our behalf, the king, who single-handedly determines God's attitude toward all his kingdom, is none other than our great high priest, Jesus Christ. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and he will reign forever and ever. That is good news for us, because we need not fear a change in regime. With him as our king forever, we will be forever blessed. And Hebrews is saying to us, this covenant that is dependent on the king and his mercy, his faithfulness, and the fact that we have failed, but this king will ensure the success of his people. More on that next week. Jesus walked into God's throne, and God said, hey, Jesus, have a seat. Let's pray. Father, Father, thank you. We're not able to keep this covenant. We have failed you many, many times. But you have given us a high priest who could walk into your presence who could atone for all of our sins. And that would be our king. Father, help us to to repent of the things we have in our hands right now that we cling or or hold on to for self-righteousness, the things that we claim that we think will save us, that will give us hope for tomorrow. Empty us of our hands so that they refitting to grab hold of the fittingness of Christ as our high priest, as our redeemer. Father, I ask that you would do this in your people, that you do this in this church for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.